Thank you all so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I'm from Minneapolis, so I'm kind of a Midwest girl, but I've been to New York a few times, and I usually get around pretty well. Like, I really like being here, and I do well. Um, so I flew in, and I did some work in Manhattan, and then I texted Jen about, oh, 7.30 last night, and I said, okay, I'm ready to come. She gave me all the instructions to get out here. And uh, I did it all, you know, I got on, I switched to Union Square, I got on that train and started heading this way, and I thought, I got lots of time, I'm gonna get my book out. And I started reading. <laughs> and next thing I knew, I was in Queens. And I was like, oh, well, that's not quite where I'm supposed to be. So I texted Jen and said, okay, I'm in Queens. How do I get back to you? <laughs> and so, you know, about three hours after I left Manhattan, I was in Brooklyn at Jen's. Um, so I'm on very little sleep and lots of travel to lots of places, but I'm really glad to be here with you all today. Um, as Jen said, I'm here for, for the She Has Called conference that we've been organizing together, and I'm really excited about it, and I know she's been telling you a lot about it, and so I won't push it a lot here, but I do um, just want to invite you to be there. I'd love to have you there. It's this Tuesday through Thursday at West End Collegiate Church. Um, but the reason that I bring that up is because I've, spending a lot of time, I've been spending a lot of time dealing with that word, called, that we talked about a little bit ago as I've planned the conference. Um, and using the word called with the pronoun she says a particular thing about the intersection of identity and vocation, how there are identities that we can hold so tightly that they block our perception of our calling, how sometimes our identities can imprison us and keep us from real connection to ourselves and our community. Our identities are complex and come from lots of places. Some identities we're born with, some we take on or shape ourselves intentionally, some shape us as we agree to them unconsciously, and there are, identities, there are identities we desire but don't have, some we perform but don't feel, some we feel but don't perform. We're given identities by society, family, and friends, and this isn't a bad thing in itself. Identity is important. But knowing that we are not the pure sum of our identities is also important. Seeing how identity can act as a, a block to our true calling and to community. Gender is, to me, one of the first and most powerful ways we identify ourselves. For me, womanhood is something I've shaped and been shaped by, something I've chosen and something that's been imposed on me, something I perform and something I feel. And it's complicated my relationship with calling, for sure. So today I want to look at my experience with my, with my gender identity as a lens through which we can look at identity and calling and try to understand those things a little bit better. I grew up as a pastor's kid in the evangelical church of the 80s and 90s. When I look at the evangelical church of my childhood, I find a deeply gendered story. A story that said, God is male, the church is female, and rightly submissive. One of the ideas that took hold and was articulated during the 80s was complementarianism. Is that something that rings a bell, that word, to anybody? No? Okay, cool. Well, we're going to talk about it. So, um, so I want to take a little bit of time um, to, to talk about these, this idea and, and how it was articulated. Um, because patri patriarchal ideas are often views, viewed as a given in traditional churches, they just are, and that's, we just sort of accept them as, as a thing that exists, kind of in the same way we accept our identities. Um, and so it's, it's helpful to think about it instead as something we built, as a historical context that we created. We created these ideas, um, and so we get to actually look at them and, and then break them down if we want to. Um, a basic explanation of complementarianism would go something like this. Men were created to be leaders. Their God-given nature suits them to be in positions of power. Women were created to be helpers. Their God-given nature suits them to be in positions of service. The genders complement each other in these differences. Complementarianism states that this is the natural order of things based on the creation narratives, that acting outside of these roles or identities is to in some way act against God's intention. These roles matter more than our, our giftedness or our desires. 
We are obligated first and foremost to an ideal of gender, and we only get to offer whatever is in the scope of our genetic or biological gender. The ideas behind complementarianism are as old as, as patriarchy. <laughs> There's nothing surprising in them, really. Um, patriarchy and, it, and its ideals are the foundation upon which this society is built. What is interesting to me is that this particular articulation of patriarchy um, as the intent of God is relatively new. Um, it wasn't until 1987 that a group of concerned evangelicals met and drafted the Danvers Statement. Is that a thing anybody has heard of? So this is like a, an actual articulation of, of the patriarchal stance of the church. Um, it's called the Danvers Statement of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. As a follow-up to that meeting, John Piper and Wayne Grudem published what would become the Bible of Complementarianism, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism. In 1991, they wrote that book. They wrote it in part to, to respond to the establishment of the Center for Biblical Equality, which was working to empower women in church leadership, and the work of a female theologian named Elvira Mickelson. Um, she'd been, uh, so this is all kind of close to home a little bit because I, I live in Minneapolis, and these people were all, all working at Bethel College. So um, Wayne Grudem and John Piper and Elvira Mickelson were all professors at Bethel. And um, I have friends who were there at the time that they were all teaching, and they've talked about Elvira and how she was this fierce woman, and she had this great articulation of, of a feminist theology, and how these other professors, in great relationship, they were all in great relationship, but how they pushed so hard back against what she was trying to develop. Um, and so I have this vision of her as this just sort of badass woman that I just can't get enough of. Anyway, so she's pretty fabulous. But instead of allowing her theology to sort of broaden their ideas, these complementarians, like I said, pushed back really hard to sort of reinforce and metastasize a polarized view of gender that said we can only behave in these ways. So people had started to call out these ideas that weren't working, and complementarians decided, let's really re-articulate this and make it really clear. And as odd as this is going to sound, I want to say that I consider that clear articulation a gift. It articulates the very boundaries that we now get to push against. Gender expectations and inequalities live in many places, and places but can often be difficult to name and see. It can be hard to name our experiences with inequality. And this is one place where it's been named so clearly in the church that we actually get to push against it really clearly because we can see it. Um, I also think our identities can be that way, that we can be, it's hard to name the identities that we're clinging to and that we're putting out there. Um, and so it, this is, again, a way that we can say, okay, in this case, this is really clear. Let's talk about this one, this identity, and how we can push against it. Um, a friend said to me recently that, um, I've been able to see the, that I've been able to see the walls of my prison for a long time, and I'm just now choosing to walk out of it. And I think identity, gender, or any other identity can act as a prison, and that we can barely see the walls, and so we stay, stay trapped inside, performing a particular identity just because we can't find our way out. So I want to talk a little bit about that process for me, about seeing the walls of the prison and the time it's taken for me to decide to walk out. And I want to use the word calling to do that, and maybe in the process redefine it a little bit. In talking about calling, did you all have, like, I really enjoyed our conversation because we talked a little bit about giftedness and about how instead of a calling being one particular thing, it's actually just a set of skills or giftedness. Did you all have any thoughts while you were talking that you'd like to share with me? I'd love to hear them. About calling in your life? Yeah. Right. That's the one thing I got to do. Oh, you can do multiple things. You have multiple interests. Maybe we'll even intersect 
Right, right. And could take different expressions at different times or whatever. Last, I was watching Jonathan's message from last week, and he actually talked a little bit about this, and that he didn't necessarily feel a call to be a pastor, right? But that he had multiple giftednesses, and this is where he landed. And I thought, oh, I, love, I love this, that you guys are already talking about calling in a complicated way, I think is, re- is really exciting for me um, as I'm talking about all this. Um, let's see. Where am I? <laughs> um, Um, I'm really actually like the word calling has really been a struggle for me. It's an, it was an important one in my house growing up because my dad is a pastor and, and talked a lot about his calling to be a pastor. He actually felt like he had a single calling in life. He would tell the story about being a teenager and um, hearing God's call in his life to be a pastor and having a sense of like resistance and also feeling unworthy, but believing that was the thing that God wanted him to do. So we talked a lot about calling. Um, and in that way, calling became something that came from outside myself, something that I, st- became, I started to understand as a voice that called me out of myself into something else, if that makes any sense. Um, so God, from some distant place, created a role and called somebody to it, like an assignment. And often a calling involved deep self-sacrifice. It certainly had nothing to do with wanting or desire that came from inside of someone, right? In fact, if I had a desire, it was very likely the thing I needed to lay down in order to follow my calling, right? That was the thing I should sacrifice, was my desire. Um, For me, that sacrifice was explicitly gender, and gender was the identity prison I was trapped in. So I went to Bible college right out of high school, and um, I remember being in a class where we had to take a spiritual giftedness test, and... um, I took the test and I came out gifted as a pastor and a shepherd. And I, of course, had never thought about that as an option because it wasn't an option for me <laughs> um, in my world. And, and my professor reiterated that when he said, if you're a woman and you've been, you've been, uh, you're gifted as a pastor or shepherd, don't despair. You can use that gift in lots of places even if you can't lead a church. And I, re- I remember feeling sort of embarrassed that for a minute I had identified with that calling or that, that giftedness as a pastor. And, um, and I, I let it go. So this told me that what I feel internally isn't to be trusted. That moment, at moment, like moment, moment and moment after of the church saying this, that the things inside of you, your passions, you shouldn't act on those. Acting on those would separate you from God, would make you something other than the thing God, God intended. And in that position, I became paralyzed. The stakes were too high, right? I couldn't do anything. What I felt inside of me was not allowed to me, and I was torn from myself. Um, Parker Palmer, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, says it like this. The idea that, vo- that vocation or calling comes from a voice external, external to ourselves, a voice of moral demand that acts us to be someone that we are not yet, someone different, someone better, someone just beyond our reach. That concept of vocation is rooted in deep distrust of selfhood. Um, keep losing please. <laughs> in the belief that the sinful self will always be selfish unless corrected by external forces of virtue. It is a notion that made me feel inadequate to the task of living my life, creating guilt about the distance between who I was and who I was supposed to be, leaving me exhausted as I labored to close the gap. Feeling the world in this way removes all agency. In my life, I could not identify a way for me to move toward God and toward my internal knowing at the same time. It became literally paralyzing. I stopped attending church, I decided to move away from, from the church entirely, and after Bible college, I got a master's degree and hoped in, in English, not in Bible, and hoped to never do church work again. But then I had kids, and kids make you remember you're a spiritual being and that you need community. So I found a church in Minneapolis called Solomon's Porch. It was a different kind of place where questions are welcomed and everyone's sorting at their own place. 
But here's the thing. A church that encourages that kind of freedom and self-knowing is indeed addicting because it's real community. I found, myself getting, I found myself getting drawn back into the conversations in the most productive way possible. And yes, I'm back at faith work. I work, like Jen said, at the Open, uh, uh, at the open Network, and we organize churches around the country and, um, and have, have these conversations with them, and it's been the most fascinating work for me to do uh, because I'm, I'm actually in the position where I get to talk to all these pastors who are doing the work that my dad did and, and trying to understand their process and their vocation. And it's been so fulfilling for me to, to come back into this and say, what do we do if we're just open about having these conversations? And we build community out of these pastors who are having these conversations who then get to go back and build community in their places. And how do we do that well? Um, one of the ways that I was able to f- begin to feel free from this separation internally is that um, my colleague, pastor, and friend, Doug Paget wrote a book called Flipped, and I got to write the audience guide for that book, um, or the, the study guide for that book. And in the book, um, Doug reminds us that we are in God, that there is no outside of God. In God, we live and move and have our being, Paul writes. In that case, the goal isn't for me to move toward God through calling, by an external calling, to move toward it. I don't have to fear a misstep because I'm literally moving in God. So this is about my moving in confidence in God, believing in my inness regardless of the layers of identity that blind me to it. When I assume or know that I am in God, as in God is everyone and all, I get to act, not in accordance with a prescribed role, but based on my calling. And calling is remade as an alignment with an internal power and agency, a confident movement in God to speak and to lead and to serve with a full belief in my acceptedness. Um, So Parker Palmer says then, as he goes on to talk about vocation in that book, Let Your Life Speak, he says it like this. Today I understand vocation quite differently, not as a goal to be achieved, but as a gift to be received. Discovering vocation does not mean scrambling towards some, some prize just beyond my reach, but accepting the treasure of the true self I already possess. Vocation does not come from a voice out there calling me to be a person I am not. It comes from a voice in here calling me to be the person I was born to be, to fulfill the original selfhood given me at birth by God. So now we get to talk about that. We get to talk about calling as that internal howl of passion, something that comes from inside. Um... There's, I, I really loved the idea of exploring this together, the idea of how passion and freedom could create community between us and what that could look and feel like. Um, and there's one woman in the, bio, in the Bible who continually acts outside of sort of her, her cultural identity and, and moves toward God in that. And she sort of stands for me as like a, a fierce soul or a, or a foremother in this act of intentionally acting outside of my identity at times. Um, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, seems to always do the wrong thing at the wrong time. She sits at Jesus' feet in the posture of a student, which was totally inappropriate for her gender at that point in history, um, when the rest of the women were preparing and serving. She lets her deepest calling pull her into interaction with God. She did this again, acted on pure wanting and passion just before Jesus' death. And we'll read the story again, um, though Jen read it for us from the Gospel of John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this, not because he cared about the, the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This story is told in every gospel. The woman isn't clearly identified in any but the John passage. Matthew and Mark tell us, tell, tell it as an anointing of Jesus' head, which Rachel Held Evans has pointed out, is in the tradition of the anointing of kings by priests, and therefore aligns this woman with priesthood. In Luke, the woman is called a sinner, and the disciples are shocked that Jesus would welcome her passion and let her touch him. But here in John, the woman is identified as Mary, Mary who has regularly acted on her wanting to be near him, who has rejected the identity imposed on her by her society to act from a place of true agency, agency that is connected to her deepest wanting. This time, she breaks an alabaster bottle of perfume worth a year's wages. She lets down her hair, which in her culture was considered an erotic move pours the oil on Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair. There's no way to read this and to picture it and to deny the incredible passion of this moment. The author, Frederick Beckman, writes this about passion. All passion is childish. It's banal and naive. It's nothing we learn. It's instinctive, and so it overwhelms us, overturns us. It bears us away in a flood. All other emotions belong to the earth, but passion inhabits the universe. That is the reason why passion is worth something, not for what it gives us, but for what it demands we risk, our dignity, the puzzlement of others and their condescending, shaking heads. This is what Mary did. She risked condescension and shaking heads. She just moved. She felt the deepest calling of her heart and acted on it. There were so many reasons for her not to, so many identities to let go of to get to the point of action. And don't think for a minute that I'm saying that passion like this is a female thing, <laughs> that we are the only ones who have been taught to act within our gendered identity at the expense of our calling. Look at Jesus' response. He could have held his identity as a man as a shield. He could have, as his disciples did, rebuked her for her extravagance or for her lack of control. To do so would have been to protect all the things about manhood and godhood that his followers wanted him to protect. It would have been to hold an identity tightly, but he didn't, and Mary knew he wouldn't. He had welcomed her before. He had acted outside of his prescribed identity, and she knew she was safe to do the same. Not only did Jesus welcome her passion, he honored it as an act of knowing, of knowing that he would soon die and preparing him for that. More than that, in the next chapter, Jesus has integrated her act. His behavior is informed by hers when he washes his disciples' feet. His expression of love and care was built out of hers. The disciples can't have helped but remember the passion of Mary when Jesus knelt to wash their feet. They knew he was validating her act. This is, to me, the best expression of community and how we shape community. To see the deep humanity of one another and to allow ourselves to partake in relationship from our deepest humanity. We so often have become trapped in our identities. Traditions have told us that men are like this and women are like this, and we've become so convinced of those rules and roles that we seldom question if they're serving us, if they're making us more whole as the body of Christ. What if we listened instead to our internal howls and shared our deepest internal voices boldly and kindly? What could we learn from each other? How could we, like Jesus and Mary, be shaped by real experiences of one another, real experiences of community? What I believe happens when I put down my identity shields is that I get to move freely in God. It impacts my experience of God and others rather than shaping God's understanding of me. 
So for me, this is not about fixing my relationship with God or proving that I'm doing something God wanted me to do, but it's very much about my relationship with others. I allow myself to be shaped by actual interaction with the world, to say yes to things I'm afraid of, to follow and feel with immediacy my calling, and in so doing, I make space for others to do the same. To stop manipulating relationships by shaping an identity for others to respond to, and instead show up with vulnerability and allow myself to feel and respond in relationship. I'm convinced that realizing this about identity um, and figuring out how to, sh to shape this is in part about turning our attention away from what others think about us and paying attention to our own internal knowing. Um, to think about what I'm experiencing instead of, instead of how others are experiencing me. And instead of that being a selfish act, it becomes an act of true living sacrifice to bring what I actually am and to offer it in relationship. And to do that, I need to move attention away from identity shaping to self-knowing. Um, and, and this, I feel like, is, is such a huge part in your, in your series about why Forefront and thinking about communities where you're free to do that, free to actually show up and be who you are and know that you'll be met by someone who is responding out of their own vulnerability. Um, and in, in our community at Solomon's Porch, that's a thing we practice really intentionally. And one of the things we do um, during our gatherings is to just invite a lot of participation from, from our community. And so we, we did a thing for a while called Building a Belief. Um, and it was a time when somebody from the community would come and just talk about a belief they had built and how they built it. So not necessarily trying to um, convince you to agree with them or talk about the belief and its technicalities, but to talk about how they built that belief. So um, when it was my turn to do that, I started thinking about it and I thought, I, you know, I think I actually have some beliefs that have not been helpful to me, that I've built unintentionally and that I need to break down. And so I decided to talk about one of those, something that I believed that I didn't want to believe anymore, that I was trying to undo. And it came out um, as a spoken word poem. And um, so I'm going to share that with you um, because it talks a lot about my process in, in undoing an identity that I've been trying to perform. And that identity is um, that I should be pleasing. Um, so my belief is that I ought to be pleasing. And I'm going to talk that through, poetry style. <laughs> so this is called Seeking Pleasing. I believe I ought to be pleasing. Pleasing means being quiet, making you feel witty and smart by keeping conversations safely within the bounds of your skills. Not saying what I think because it isn't what you think. And maybe what I think is sharp enough to undo what you think. Or maybe it's dull enough to pollute the space between us. But then, pleasing means being assertive because women today should be bold the one to fill the silence, to make the point that needs making to prove I'm as smart as you. Pleasing means being invisible, a blank sheet onto which you can write the story that suits you. Desire, angel, sweetheart, mother, friend. And then means being, means being visible, clearly marked so you know what to expect. The ring, the age, the roles, clear categories. Pleasing means being groomed so that when you look you think that, that is what I wanted to see. Like the man who patted my little one's head and shook her father's hand. Such a pretty daughter. As if her beauty was for his sake, a gift to him from her father. Or as if in congratulations, her beauty and achievement. Pleasing means being effortless, so that my trying isn't too obvious, lest you feel threatened even by that, or that I become uninteresting in my acquiescence. Pleasing means burying my talent, the last fearful servant. Sometimes not afraid of losing, but of outdoing. Shining can be unbearable. But sometimes, because my talents will never match yours, first servant of investment and returns. Means whatever things were gained to me, I have counted as loss, that I may know you. Know you by not knowing myself. Allowed proximity because conflict is impossible, because I am always already emptied and erased. 
Pleasing means being 15 and kneeling on the floor to prove there is only one inch between that floor and my hem to a teacher with a ruler. Means measuring with three fingers to make sure my neckline is a modest distance from my collarbone. Means being 19 and wearing the shorter skirt because you told me not to be a prude. Means being 38 and changing 10 times because everything feels like too much. Too tight, too low, too sweet, too old, too young, too revealing, too intimidating. Means seeing articles titled 10 things a woman over 35 should never wear and reading them. Means my body is for your pleasure, not mine. My pleasure dependent on your whim. My responses and aches molded to yours. Pleasing means my feelings ought to reflect yours. If you love, I love. If you distance, I distance. If you smile, I smile. If you want, I want. Never ask, never need, never want anything other than what you would have me want. Means only worrying when you have the solution. Only emoting when you have capacity. Only wanting what you can give. Means, means narrowing my feelings to the constructs in which we live. Not letting them overrun the boundaries, and if they do, pulling them back quickly, hoping no one saw. Pleasing means being just a pretty face. Means being more than a pretty face. Means smiling when I'm angry. Means comforting you when I'm undone. Means breathing deeply when I want to scream. Means saying yes when I feel no. Saying will when I feel won't. Saying do when I feel don't. Pleasing till I'm sick with my own sweetness. Sick with swallowing unsaid words and choked down feelings. Sick with wanting to know what I know. Wanting to hear my own ache, my own wit, my own soul, my own frequency turned up, up so that I can hear it over the din of demand. Sick with fear that pleasing is the only pleasure I'm offered. A pleasure hollowed of substance, my senses undone capitulating to yours. And then there it is. I know I'm seeking what can't be found, trying to grasp what can't be held. Your pleasure is a thing I cannot feel. I can only feel my own, and mine lives in my body senses alive and curious, and my body knows already the way rain feels on the crown of my head, the piercing of a rock on my bare feet, the pink halo around my baby's hand pressed against the sunshine in the car window, the arc of lamplight on the wall soft at its edges, the sound of a plate being placed on the wooden table, another forehead leaning against mine in a shared breath. This is pleasing. Um, we all pray with me? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for passion. Thank you for our bodies that get to feel passion. Thank you for the way um, that as passion plays out in us and we are vulnerably open to it, we get to connect with others. God, I pray you'd help us to lay down identities that are trapping us, to be able to come vulnerably and not performatively to one another, to figure out where we've been... Um, so blinded by identity that we have not been acting out of passion and calling. Um, give us the ability to, to locate those places in ourselves, our giftedness, our skills, the things that bring us life so we can give from that place that never goes dry because it's continually renewing. Thank you so much that you made us that way, that passion is part of who we are and that we get to live in it. Uh, we're grateful. Amen.